Hi, I'm Eric Gurna, Executive Director of Development Without Limits, and this is Please Speak Freely, the podcast where we have honest conversations about youth development and education. So I'm here in West Philadelphia with Mark Manella, who's the CEO of KIPP Philadelphia. Did I get that right? Yep. Good. Absolutely. Um, so, th- Mark, thanks for agreeing to be on and please speak freely. My pleasure, Eric. Uh, so I guess, you know, the, there's there's so much to talk about when it comes to KIPP, um, and there, there's so much conversation about KIPP uh, in, in the field in general, um, and even in the sort of more public discourse. And I, I guess I'd like to start out by asking you what drew you to come to work at KIPP. I believe you were a classroom teacher with Teach for America starting out? I was. Yeah, that's right. So what drew you to KIPP? I mean, I think it was how aligned what KIPP believes is to what I believed. Um, I was a teacher. I I taught for two years through Teach for America in in West Baltimore, Mm -hmm. actually in Baltimore, Maryland for two years. And then I moved to Philadelphia. Um, and was teaching at a small charter uh, in, in North Philadelphia. Um, and I had the opportunity to be on a panel um, with Mike Feinberg. Mm-hmm. Um, Mike Feinberg is one of the founders of the original KIPP school in Houston back in the early 90s. Um, and we were talking about uh, Teach for America and sort of what you can do when you're done with mm-hmm. your Teach for America core experience. I said you could stay in the classroom. Yeah. Um, other people were talking about going into consulting, and Mike said you can actually start your own school. Mm-hmm. So we're on this panel together, and I approached Mike afterwards because Mike was talking about the expansion of KIPP, which had just started. This is back in 2002. Um, and I said, Mike, when are you guys coming to Philly? Because everything that you're talking about, what kids can do um, when, when they're taught in a high-quality way in a, in a safe environment – um, I, that's what I believe too. And mm-hmm. so if you guys were to come to Philly, I would be the first person to apply to be your science teacher. Um, and he said, well, I've just listened to you for the last 90 minutes and you're exactly the kind of guy that we would like to see open the first KIPP school in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, from there, it was a, a question of really digging deep inside myself and figuring out what it was I was really willing to commit to and do um, towards what I believed. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, I decided to apply for the Fisher Fellowship, which is a one-year training um, that KIPP Foundation runs to help uh, teachers learn how to set up and, and start their own KIPP-like schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was fortunate enough to be selected to be a Fisher Fellow. Um, and from there, uh, worked in the 02-03 school year designing a school. Um, I had to apply for a charter. I had to recruit kids. I had to hire teachers. I had to get insurance. Like everything you have to do. And this is sort of a, a, a mock exercise, or this is you were no, you were really going through the process right off the bat. This was it. This is how Kip Philadelphia started. Okay. Um, it was this 0203 school year where I spent the entire year working to this. Um, and in July of 2003, we opened Kip Philadelphia Charter School. 95th grade students, four teachers, an office manager in a somewhat abandoned community center in North Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and those were our sort of inauspicious beginnings. Mm. And so you basically just stuck with it and ended up as the CEO. When did you start as the as the CEO or did you just sort of grow into that role as the as the thing grew that you stayed the leader? Of yeah, the whole thing. it was the latter. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I was sort of always the CEO of KIPP Philadelphia mm-hmm. uh, because back then it was just one grade. Right. Um, and as we grew and we experienced more and more success, 
Um, and by the time that our, our first group of kids, those fifth graders, were in the eighth grade, which is the end of, of a KIPP middle school experience, um, 91% of our eighth graders uh, were proficient or advanced on the state test in math and mm-hmm. 91% in reading. Um, and we knew we were being successful at that point. Um, and so we decided to grow. Um, and so we put together a, a plan um, that was going to have us grow to 10 schools in Philadelphia, um, we were going to expand K to 12, so we were going to start doing elementary schools and high schools, um, which is a, a pattern that is being followed across the country by KIPP schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, what started as originally middle schools has now expanded to a K to 12 movement. Um, and we calculated that if we could get to 10 schools in Philly, we'd be serving about 4,400 students in North and West Philadelphia. Um, and that expansion would increase the number of students from Northwest Philadelphia who are going to college by about 40 percent. It was a pretty mm-hmm. significant impact that mm-hmm. we knew we could have. Um, and so we've set out on this plan. We're currently today at four schools. Um, we serve about 1,000 students. We have an elementary school. We have two middle schools. And we have a high school. Um, and we are on our way to hitting uh, 10 schools by 2016. Okay. So at, at the beginning of that, you said that the what really drew you to it was that Kip believed what you believed, that you felt like there was a sort of a um, – it was compatible. Your your values, your beliefs was compatible with what Kip was already trying to do. So what is that set of values? What is that set of beliefs? Ultimately, it's that if you work hard and you are nice, um, that you, you, there is no limit to what you can accomplish. Um, our students come to us between two and three grade levels behind. I mean, that's our reality. Um, our students largely come to us from the neighborhood schools um, that have basically failed their neighborhood for generations. Um, And so when we take in a new fifth grade student who is so far behind, um, that does not mean that their destiny is set. Um, It means that there needs to be an intervention of sorts. We can't continue to do the same old things if we're going to expect that our students are going to be able to go to and through college and have a happy, independent life. Um, But it it doesn't mean it's impossible either. My student's zip code does not have to define their destiny. And so what we have said is if we roll up our sleeves and we work harder and we go to school from 7.30 until 5, we go every other Saturday, we go for a month in the summer. If we roll up our sleeves and we work harder, our students can and will achieve. That's ultimately, fundamentally what it is that that I believed that Mm -hmm. when I met Mike that first night when I heard him talking about Kip back in 2002, sort of drew me to – um, wants to be a part of this movement. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a few things in what you're just saying that I want to kind of pull out and <clears throat> see if we can examine a little bit more. Um, one of them I had actually noticed from uh, the one pager about your schools. Um, and it, it says, in, you know, slightly different words, what you just said, zip code does not define destiny. But then what it has underneath that to sort of spell that out is the a, a couple of charts that show the test scores that mm-hmm. show what the results can be of I believe it's like uh, you know kids from equivalent backgrounds mm-hmm. and what they can um, score on the tests. Now, th- when I saw that, th- what came to mind for me was if it's saying zip code does not define destiny, and then it's showing the the test score results. Does that mean that the test scores are equivalent to the destiny in that equation? Uh, I'm glad you asked it, uh, that question. I mean, obviously not, but at the same time, there needs to be some scoreboard to point to at the end of the day Mm -hmm. to understand how we're doing. Um, For for KIPP, the goal is not a seventh grade math score. Mm -hmm. That in itself isn't a goal. A seventh grade math score lets us know how we're doing against our goal. Our goal is for all of our students to have a happy, independent life. 
And the way that we sort of make that tangible for our students is talking about college, because increasingly in this economy and in this world that we live in, uh, a, a bachelor's degree um, or an advanced degree is going to be sort of one of the things that you need in order to have that happy, independent life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we're talking to our fifth graders, when we're talking to our kindergartners, when we're talking to our ninth graders, we're talking uh, about college. Um, and so test scores are, like I said, they're, they're like a benchmarking. Um, more than they are the goal. Mm -hmm. If test scores were the goal, then why would I have music class? Uh, Why would we put science education when there's no science test um, into our curriculum? Um, We have to be careful not to only think about the tests Mm -hmm. because then that leads to four hours of math and four hours of reading every day. There's more to a college preparatory education than just math and reading. But you have to have math and reading. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a false choice to say um, that we can't have great scores and have a robust college preparatory education that in- includes all the things that I was fortunate enough to have with my um, suburban public school that I attended when I was a child. Um, we want that for our kids mm-hmm. here at KIPP Philadelphia as well. So if the, the test scores are a benchmark to see if you're making progress towards these larger goals, is what you're saying, right? Yes. So, But what do you think about the tests themselves? Like how good of a benchmark are they? How good of a measuring system are they? Uh, they're just okay, right? I mean, ultimately, um, the, the, the it's fun to have these types of conversations because we can talk about whether the test is, is appropriate or not. I would love to see more performance-based uh, testing on here. Um, I would love to see it structured differently. I'd love to see a portfolio be able to sort of uh, be a, a substitute for a, a written bubble-in standardized test. Um, but the reality is uh, my kids have to take the test that's in front of them and that they'll be judged and our school will be judged based on how they do. Um, and, and, you know, we can talk all we want to about whether or not uh, the tests are fair or whether or not they are an accurate indicator. At the end of the day, our kids have to perform on them. President Obama had to nail the LSAT or else he wasn't getting into Harvard Law. Now, there are things about President Obama that make him a great leader, and let's not get political, like whether you think he's a great leader or not. There are things about him that make him a pretty incredibly successful guy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Ultimately, he had to nail the LSAT or else he doesn't get into Harvard Law, and if he doesn't get into Harvard Law, all these other doors aren't open for him. Mm -hmm. Um, He could have said, well, the LSAT is an unfair measure. And so I'm not going to take it or I'm not going to prepare for it or whatever. But he, he didn't do that, right? And our kids can't or shouldn't do that either. Okay. But in that, in that analogy, I agree that the, the young Obama saying the LSAT's an unfair measure, I'm not going to take it, um, is, is unreasonable to expect that. But, but your school in that analogy is Harvard, right? So if Harvard said – and I don't know anything about the LSAT, so you're using it as an, as an example. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. but I, I like the example because it's at the, it's it's clear and it's at the highest level of education in terms of the hierarchy. So if Harvard decided to say, uh, we think the LSATs are an unfair measure. We don't think they measure um, the intellectual capabilities of students. We don't think they measure they measure the the aptitude towards being a good attorney. We're not gonna. We're no longer gonna care about the LSAT. You can take it, you can show us your scores, but we're not going to care about it. If KIPP did that, well, I mean, is it, doesn't KIPP as an entity, as an institution, have that kind of uh, – I, I don't want to say it has as much uh, influence as Harvard does because nothing has as much influence as Harvard does, <laughs> um, except maybe Yale, everybody, so calm down. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's, I don't think it's really – 
fair analogy to say, well, our kids shouldn't be expected not to take the test. But um, why does Kip have to care so much about the test? Um, At the end of the day, our kids are going to be judged, um, whether it's when they apply to high schools, um, if they decide to leave our middle school and try and get a scholarship to a private school or try and earn acceptance into a magnet, Mm -hmm. um, or whether it's at the end of high school when they're going to try and get into college. Our students will be judged. Um, And so to that end, we aren't doing our job if we're not preparing them to be judged um, and if we're not setting them up for success on that. And so, you know, when a college is looking at whether or not we're doing a good job preparing them, Mm -hmm. they're going to look at test scores. Um, And when they're looking at – whether they're looking at the individual student or they're looking at the school. Right. But if you as a a leader in education – um, you yourself or KIPP as, a, as an institution believes that there should be more, as you said, there should be more portfolio assessment. There should be more performance-based assessment. Um, there should be more varied measures that aren't just multiple choice tests. Um, if you believe that, couldn't you then value the multiple choice tests less and implement more of the portfolio-based and, and, and multiple measures and then lead the field in, in, in that happening? Yeah, I think we could. I think um, there is – if you're focused on everything, you don't actually have a focus, right? Um, and I think for us, as we're, as we're looking at what it is that we're trying to accomplish um, and how much farther we have to go, you know, I mean, we went and put together um, a study of how our alumni are doing in terms of college completion. Mm-hmm. We called it the KIPP College Completion Report. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we realized was that um, despite the fact that that we are incredibly proud of every single one of our alumni, um, our our aspirational goal of making sure that all of our students have the ability to not just get to college but get through college, um, we're falling short of that goal. We have about 38% of our students who are currently graduating with either a two- or a four-year degree, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's of an N uh, or of a, of, a, of, a, of a subset of students when we're saying like the, the students that we're measuring there um, are finished – students who finished eighth grade with us. Okay. Right? Um, so the students who finished eighth grade with us, it's something like, you know, eight years late or nine years, 10 years later, um, 38% of them have a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to push on that. That's our focus. Our focus is increasing that college completion. Um, I don't think our focus can be that and also trying to overhaul the way that the nation assesses learning. Mm. Um, I think that there are... Um, there are some schools that are going sort of above and beyond on that type of work right now. That's not our sort of core focus. Mm-hmm. Um, in some classrooms, uh, in our schools, you'll see a totally different way of, of assessing, and that's part of uh, the power of KIPP and, and the, what we call power to lead, um, where uh, at, at every different uh, level there are different decisions that folks get to make. Teachers get to decide ultimately a lot about the way that they deliver curriculum, the way they assess students. And so in some individual classrooms you'll see, um, in some science classrooms, you'll see you know, a huge percentage of a child's report card grade be based on, on labs and, and, and that type of work. And, and I think that's super appropriate. Um, at the end of the day, though, I don't think you're going to see KIPP stepping up to be a leader in reforming the way students are assessed because all of our energy is, is really being focused on helping our kids get to and, and through college. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we necessarily – I'll speak for myself, actually, and say I don't necessarily see that as, as my fight. Right. I mean, I, I, I see that it, it seems like KIPP is a leader in – focusing more on high stakes testing by emphasizing the the success based on that measure 
so it's hard for me to it's hard for me to sort of accept that you can say you you value the the performance based assessment and all of that at the same time as like it seems like the the pressure has been put on so much more by I don't mean just by KIP, but by what's often referred to as the KIP model, because it's really mm-hmm. it's it's really not just KIP. It's it's a yes. whole coalition of, right, of right. charter schools and others. Um, certainly, um, you know Michelle Ree and Arnie Duncan and Joel Klein, you know, are not representing directly representing charter schools per se, but are sort of sort of part of that same approach to measurement of success. Um, but I I understand what you're what you're talking about, about the focus thing. I, um, you know, my concern is that there's not, uh, and I've talked about this before, there's not a shining example for the alternative to um, standardized tests. Right. There's, there are pockets, as you referred to, but they're not, they're not well known. Right. No, I, I think that's right. It's really interesting. Like I said, I think that um, as, as practitioners on the ground, and, and, and because KIPP is a decentralized model, right, um, and because we are, we run very sort of lean and mean. Um, and so at the KIPP Foundation level, there are some folks who get to spend a lot of time thinking about these greater issues. But on the ground here in Philly, yeah. like we are so lean. Um, and, and that's because just ideologically, we believe that the revenue that, that we're bringing in should be directly impacting the students as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a research team. I don't have um, you know, a whole sort of uh, uh, office full of cubicles with people working to solve X, Y, and Z, right? Right, you know, think tank. Um, yeah, exactly. And so, no, I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from in this. It's really interesting. And it is, um, you know, one of the, 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 the criticisms I have of, of what's happening in education right now is that the folks who don't believe the same things don't talk to each other enough, mm-hmm. right? I think that we tend to surround ourselves um, with people who think like we do. Yeah. And so then you have folks who are in sort of in this one camp yeah. um, that don't want to see testing, that don't want to see, um, you know, we were just talking about Alfie Cohn before before the, the taping. We were talking right. about Alfie Cohn and Punished by Rewards. Folks who, who are, are sort of in this camp. And then there are sort of the, I think they're called sometimes the no excuses charter mm-hmm. crowd, right? And we right. talk to each other. Right. Um, and never shall the two meet, it seems like. Um, that's a detriment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that... Um, uh, that we need to agree on everything. But I do think that 95% of what we want is completely aligned. Mm-hmm. I really do firmly believe that. We're que- our, 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 our conflict or, or what we don't agree on is the tactics. Um, so what is the way to get the result that we're looking for? Like we yeah. want to be able to have uh, an educated workforce. We want to be able to have a democracy where people understand uh, a well-educated democracy so that we can make good choices and um, and and we can run our country in a way that is going to be living up to the democratic ideals of our founding fathers, except maybe a little more inclusively than maybe our founding fathers envisioned sure. it, right? Um, we all want that. So how are we going to get there mm-hmm. is the question that we're grappling with. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the, the movement would benefit uh, from people actually talking to folks who don't necessarily agree with them. And that's well, not happening. Well, I'm taking a step in that direction. At least, you know, I, I, we're, I know. We're, we're not actually getting in on the same – um, on the same episode, but I, you know, we're trying to talk to people who have different approaches. I, I, I would say the, I agree with you except for one part of what you just said, which is I don't think it's just tactics. I think that it's it's values too. Hmm. I think that there are, and and by values I mean we some people value certain things more than they value other things. I don't mean that that people have. Um, I don't mean morals. 
Right, right. So, you know, I agree with you on the, on the, on the side of, you know, I think the vast majority of people who are just in the field of youth development education in general have the same sort of morals. They want this, the same, they want to work towards a more idealistic, better world. But I think what we value is different. And maybe we could get, get into what I mean about that a little bit, because it, it definitely connects to where I wanted to, to go. Um, so you, a couple things you were saying um, that before we even got started, you were talking about how it can there can be a challenge of how sort of um, open and candid that you can be um, at at times um, because there's and this you didn't say this this is me editorializing there's your institution and there's your own personal views and um, but at the same time from what I, the things that I've read before I came down here. Um, Kip is making an effort in general, and in Kip Philadelphia in particular, at being more transparent, being more accountable. Um, yes. I read an article about the Kip Open Book Transparency and Accountability in, in the schools in, in the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and it seems like you're, there's a real genuine dedication to um, addressing some of the criticisms that have been sort of thrown at Kip um, through being more transparent. Um, but I want to connect that to what you just said, which is that. Your work is really focusing on point of contact with young people. Your work here is is not really about necessarily the the national policy debate, although you obviously are informed on that and you connect to that. But it's really about what's happening in the classroom. And so I want to sort of ask if we can take that open book concept and apply it to what's happening in the classroom a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to ask you, just first of all, just what's your own uh, – what's your – pedagogic approach? What's your philosophy about how young people learn? Um, what kinds of learning environments are best? That sort of thing. Um, sure. And I will say that um, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I, I will say that actually the open book uh, a concept came not from um, any slings and arrows that might have come the way of Kip, but it okay. was a specific response to what was happening in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Um, uh, and, and for folks who are familiar with, with what's going on here, I mean, there's something like 17 charter schools that are either either have officials under indictment or under federal investigation mm-hmm. for things ranging from nepotism to corruption to, um, you know, to just outright uh, – uh, theft and, and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we're trying to lead um, through KIPP Open Book, which is a, a, a KIPP Philadelphia initiative. We're trying to lead our community um, mm-hmm. locally more so this, uh, than nationally. I think okay. KIPP has always been pretty pretty good with transparency as we think about the report card that is published every year um, and the fact that all of our schools are, 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 are uh, open an open book and people can come in and, and visit anytime. Uh, that they want. We have open houses. We, you know, parents have an, we have an opener policy for parents, et cetera. Um, and so really, as we, as we think about what's happening um, here in Philadelphia, um, there is, you know, th- this notion of, of uh, charter schools as an entity where um, there's going to be greater accountability um, in exchange for greater freedoms, mm-hmm. right? And so there's some, some of the bureaucratic stuff doesn't exist, and we don't have to follow some of the same rules. But in exchange, there's, there's, there's greater accountability. Um, and that's, that, that's sort of it's, – it's a missed opportunity here in Philly. It's not happening that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and because charter schools can't be held accountable or aren't being held accountable, then um, the sector suffers and, if, and then just – but really what I care about is that kids suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are schools that should be open or should be pressured to improve, and that's not happening. Um, and so, 
you know, it is, uh, it, it's really open book and transparency as we think about KIPP is really focused on that. And now I'll segue back because no, I, I want to answer that, that question. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I think that the, 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 the conflict between sort of being able to operate in a totally transparent way with having to talk in sound bites and, and not feel like you can be totally candid, I think for me has, has nothing to do with the difference between what I believe and the organization okay. um, because KIPP is so aligned to what I believe mm-hmm. and because as the head of KIPP Philadelphia schools, if we're ever drifting in a direction that I don't like, I, I pull it back. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's one of the benefits of being the boss. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, so really as we, as we think about what it is um, that, that forces us or, or, or makes it really difficult to be candid, I think, is sort of how brightly glaring the spotlight is. Mm-hmm. Open book is not necessarily like a PR play. There's stuff in there that doesn't look the way I want it to. Yeah. There's stuff in there that's frustrating. There's, there's places where we have failed um, or, or at very least where we have disappointed. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are committed to owning that and to getting better. Um, around here, we, we, we embrace that Stockdale paradox that Jim Collins talks about, um, this notion that we have to be real with ourselves about our brutal facts, mm-hmm. but at the same time, never give up faith that in the end, we're going to succeed. Um, and so for us, that guides everything that we do. We can't sugarcoat the fact um, that you know sixth grade math has been a trouble spot for us historically for years. Like mm-hmm. for for whatever reason, our kids do great in fifth grade math, and then they don't. We don't see the same thing happening in sixth grade math. Um, and so you know we have to own that, and we have to do better. We can't give up and say it's hopeless. Our kids will never do well on the sixth grade PSSA. They'll never make the types of gains in sixth grade they do in fifth and seventh. But at the same time, we can't kid ourselves and say ah oh, sixth grade math isn't really a problem for us. Nah, you have to do both. So when we, I think about sort of pedagogically what I believe and what, and what we believe, um, we believe a lot that um, students have to be able to access material. And so that means sort of like when we think about teaching as an art and a science. So as we think about the science of art, we have to think about Zagofsky's um, zone of proximal development. And I won't get too sort of jargony with you. Um, but this notion that um, if you're teaching kids something they already know, um, they're not learning anything. But if you're teaching kids something that they can't access because they don't have the background knowledge or because they don't have the three prerequisite mm-hmm. skills in order to do the new skill, um, then they're not going to learn anything either. Mm-hmm. So trying to hit our kids where they are is mm-hmm. a key critical piece of what we're doing. So what does that look like? Well, in our reading classrooms, that looks like a lot of differentiation, a lot of reader's workshop style lessons where maybe we're doing an author study on Roald Dahl and our lowest readers are reading one of Roald Dahl's uh, simpler books like the like the Twits, perhaps, and our, our more advanced readers are reading James and the Giant Peach or The Big Friendly Giant, the BFG, mm-hmm. one of those types of books, um, so that there's leveling inherent. So they're going to receive the same basic lesson, but then we're going to be able to access that lesson through a novel that is on the level that they can, that they can read. Um, in the math classroom, it largely looks like uh, uh, the art or the science of it is going to be a little bit less evident other than the fact you'll notice that in a fifth grade classroom, we are not starting with fifth grade standards because our kids mostly have not mastered third and fourth grade standards. So like the beginning of the year in fifth grade, we're doing times tables, we're doing place value, we're doing third and fourth grade standards. Um, really in math is where you'll see the art of teaching 
um, and where you'll see students accessing material through uh, more engaging lesson structures. You'll see the the chants that Kip have become famous for, thanks to like you know Oprah Winfrey and all of the some of the publicity that we've gotten uh, around uh, just that one methodology that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll see uh, storytelling, you know, Desi and the Chocolate Factory as one of the um, the ways that we we teach decimals um, with bits, bytes, and bars, and and just like sort of t- telling a story and using analogies to help our kids to access what is traditionally a a more intimidating subject like math. Um, So you'll see the art and science at play in all of our classrooms. Mm -hmm. Our teachers uh, don't have autonomy over what they are teaching. So we define the scope and sequence for them that is aligned to the Pennsylvania standards and Mm -hmm. the high school aligned to the college ready standards. Um, But you will see a lot of innovation around the how it is being taught around sort of that art. So the the sort of wrap on KIPP pedagogically is that the teachers are not allowed much uh, control over how they teach and that there's a heavy emphasis on um, on control and on um, conformity. And I say that's the wrap on it because I don't, you know, I don't want to put that on it when I haven't experienced it. Yeah. Um, but I've read a lot about it and, you know, you, you, you see things and you hear things. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because, um, you know, I'm less of a policy person and more of a pedagogic child development person. And this, what I care about is how kids are treated and that, you know, that the whole realm of the kind of learning environment that we create and just the, the, the cultural environment that we create within our schools and programs. Um, and so I'm wondering, is that, is that wrap? You know, does that come from somewhere, you know, just to to get you to sort of think and talk about that aspect of it, the conformity, the culture of control um, criticism that's been put on Kip? Yeah, I think that back to you said something earlier about how um, there's Kip, there's um, and and sometimes Kip is thought of as like a leader in this movement. But this movement involves a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of different organizations. It's a much more sort of larger uh, patchwork uh, mm-hmm. sort of movement, right? Um, I think that you'll find, um, and, and let me just speak for KIPP Philadelphia, um, I think you'll actually find uh, that to be pretty false. Um, and let me say that more sort of definitively. That's false here in KIPP Philadelphia. It's not okay. true. Um, the, the, the distinction between how and what is, how a lesson is taught and what a lesson is taught is um, clear and distinct. Um, so our teachers have a ton of autonomy over how it is taught, um, but we are defining for teachers what they will be teaching, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we think that is sort of the right level of intervention um, and and the right level of let's call it support um, for a teacher when they're when they're going to be coming in and when they're going to be expected to be expert. I think that one of the th- one of the advantages that we have um, here at Kip Philadelphia. Um, you know, we require two years of, of urban classroom teaching um, of all of our teacher candidates, of all of our applicants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really are able to work with some teachers who are already quite, quite good and are already establishing that they know how to manage a classroom, that they know how to drive results. Um, they know how to build relationships and they know how to um, – and, and frankly, let's – instead of say no, they believe what we believe about teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. And so for us – um, we don't have to exert that type of command and control because we're hiring rock stars, 
rock stars in the sense of they have a high level of skill. Yeah, among other okay. things. And, and and what I don't want to sell short because we think it's actually the most important thing is they believe what we believe. And when I say that, it really comes down to sort of one critical belief. Uh, on our website, you'll find 10 uh, regional beliefs that Kip Philadelphia holds. Okay. Um, but the one that really sort of jumps out and the one that really guides our work in the classrooms the most directly is that we believe that all children will learn when taught in a high-quality way in a safe and orderly environment. Mm-hmm. Like that is that is a belief that we hold. And we are testing our teacher candidates when they're coming in, they're applying for a job at KIPP. We're testing that belief. We want to know if folks believe that. Because sometimes we, 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 in our history, we have found that that teacher who got 90% of her kids to pass some state test um, wasn't even worried about the other 10% or said, eh, that 10%, eh, those aren't kids I'm – I can't do anything with those kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not at all what we believe. We're here to serve every single child that's going to walk in our doors. Um, and we have to make sure that the teachers that we hire believe that as well, or mm-hmm. else you have misalignment between what I'm saying right now into this microphone mm-hmm. and what's actually happening on the ground. And right. that misalignment is going to be a killer. Mm-hmm. That's the type of things that brings organizations to their knees. Um, and, and what – so of those – let's talk about those 10 percent a little bit or whatever the percentage might be much, much higher, right, of, 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 of young people who are, who are coming in and who are not necessarily um, performing on the tests at the level that you want them to be. Maybe they're not um, – they don't have the sort of attitude to engage with the, the class um, as much as you want. Um, maybe they're not behaving according to the, the rules and standards of the school. How are those things handled and dealt with? What's the sort of philosophy about how to manage a large group of kids? Um, oh, I thought you were going to ask me a different question, so sorry. Uh, our approach to those students yeah. is, um, first of all, it's guided completely by the Stockdale Paradox. We're going to be real with ourselves with what's going on. We're never going to give up faith that our kids are going to be able to go to and through college and have that happy, independent life. Okay? Um, and so we have to be able to come up with then the systems and the supports to make that real mm-hmm. because we have a um, uh, our behavior system that we believe sort of works for anywhere between 85 and 95 percent of our, our students but then then what about the other five to 15 percent we have to exhaust every single thing that we can think of we have to go outside the box we have to go outside the room that the box was kept in we have to go outside the building that had the room that had the box okay like we we, we never give up we're going to try hundreds of different interventions to make it so that that child can succeed so but before we even get to what's outside mm-hmm. the box in the room and the <laughs> out in the car yeah, and yeah, the yeah. parking lot um what's the box what's the behavior system that work that works for 85% of the kids. Sure. Right? So, and I can I can speak most specifically about it at the middle school level. Okay. Because um, I think that's where, you know, that, that was when I was principal of the school, and that's, the I think, the most developed and the most standardized across all of KIPP. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a very simple token economy system for our fifth and sixth graders, for the kids in what we call the sort of the lower school of the middle school. Um, and so basically, in a nutshell, you make good choices, you earn dollars, if you act in accordance with our values, um, and our beliefs, you earn dollars. When you make bad choices, you lose dollars. These aren't real dollars. These are KIPP dollars. It's mm-hmm. a, like I said, it's a token economy. Um, and all of that is captured in what we call the paycheck. Um, then as we are, um, as, as the week goes on, they're either they're earning and losing dollars. Um, and at the end of the week, each student is given their paycheck. 
Um, and so maybe at the end of the week, a, a child has earned $22. Um, and you can see that they actually earned $29, but then they lost $7 for this, that, and the other thing. The types of things that you earn dollars for, um, like I said, if, if, you're, if you're exemplifying any of our values, so you're showing resilience, you're showing uh, respect, you're showing um, uh, any, any of the values that we have, love, grit. Um, you, you earn dollars for that. A teacher can assign a dollar for that. You earn dollars for completing your homework. You earn dollars for showing up to school on time, basically meeting our expectations. And then you lose those dollars for things like chewing gum in class, um, for um, being disrespectful, for just making the types of mistakes that middle schoolers um, you know, make. Mm-hmm. Um, 10 to 14-year-olds make mistakes. Um, we all make mistakes. But uh, from 10 to, to, to 13, that middle school age, like we know what the mistakes are. And so our systems are built around sort of making sure that there is an appropriate consequence for that. At the end of the week, you get basically what is equivalent to a behavior report card that uh, each child brings home um, to their parent, guardian, whomever. Um, and someone at home signs it when mm-hmm. they bring it back on Monday. That money is deposited into their kid bank account. They then can take that KIP, that the, the money in their KIP bank account to the KIP school store where they can buy school supplies. They can buy fun stuff. You can buy basketballs. You can buy whatever um, that, that is in our school store. Um, the uh, I, I think that the, the, for the younger kids, having something that concrete, it, is a, it, it gives a structure and it gives a sense of it's, you know, we want to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, but also because we don't want to receive the consequence that happens when I don't do the right thing. It is a a simple sort of consequence and reward system. As our kids get older, we have to wean them off this system because if you're only doing the right thing because you're afraid of a punishment or because you want a reward, then what are we actually teaching? Well, then we're only actually teaching obedience, and that is not the point. The point isn't to teach obedience. The point is to teach kids that their actions have consequences. The point is to teach kids that there is a right way and a wrong way to interact with their peers, to interact with their student, with, with, with their teachers. Mm-hmm. And so as the kids get older, we start to wean them off of this system. And so there are, by the time you're in eighth grade, you're not getting a paycheck anymore because you don't need a paycheck anymore because you already understand what's right and what's wrong in a school environment, and you're already choosing what's right. And I think that what uh, some of the notions that are sort of heaped upon Kip from folks who don't know or who aren't in our buildings mm-hmm. is like they hear this paycheck thing and, and they're like, oh, my God. Like that is, you know, <laughs> again, our friend uh, uh, Alfie Cohn, like punished by rewards, right? Like, you know, come on. All, all they're doing is, is teaching them how to, to, to sit and stay like there's some kind of animal. It would be the most inflammatory thing that someone might say about mm-hmm. us, right? Um, yeah, it's just not. It's just not true. I think people want to see a black and white picture of the world. Right. Um, but in reality, it is, it is much more um, nuanced and thoughtful, and it is a specific response to what we've seen, which is our fifth graders come to us from a school environment that was not orderly, where no one bothered to teach them or no one was successful in teaching them how to act in a school setting. And so we're going to establish that this is not your old school. And this is how we're going to expect you to behave. Mm-hmm. And you're going to meet that expectation. But one of the things you said was that the, the point of it is not to teach obedience, but it's to teach that their actions have consequences. But do you think that if you didn't have the, um, the punishment and reward system or just the reward system, that they wouldn't learn that their actions have consequences? Uh, maybe they would. Um, I think we look at 
first of all, I think this is working for us, and I think that we're finding that our kids are able to have sort of these successful, happy lives, uh, independent lives that we want them to have now that we're a little bit older as an organization. And we can see, you know, as we're hiring KIPP alums to come back and be KIPP teachers, um, and as we're, we're seeing our alumni be incredibly successful in their fields, um, I think we're seeing sort of that, that it was an effective strategy. But at the end of the day, um, what we what we are what we we believe that we're here to teach more than reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? Mm-hmm. Like character is as important to academic skills in terms of a student's success and, and having that happy, independent life. And so we want to make sure that character has as thoughtful of an approach. Um, and the way that we are the way that we are helping our students to develop that character is is as thoughtfully developed as an academic curriculum would be. Right, and certainly. It's, this is where I think it's, a, it's different values rather than different tactics. Okay. Um, and so how do I want to – isn't the system where you're, you're paying kids to behave a certain way, isn't that different from helping them to learn what it means to truly develop their own character? If they're if – they're, acting certain ways in order to get certain rewards. Aren't there messages that you're giving them about the way the world works that are outside of the specific action and the specific reward? I think that our, our approach is really rooted in sort of Kohlberg's stages of moral development, right? And so as we think about that, um, that work that, 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 that Kohlberg did, we look at um, that sort of baseline stage of moral development is I do the right thing to avoid a punishment. And then it goes to I do the right thing because I want a reward. And then eventually you get to I do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. These are stages of moral development that, you know, the theory is that every every person sort of goes through and you never sort of attain the top. The only person who consistently lived at the top level was like Gandhi or something, right? Um, and so the – um, all of us sort of uh, act in different moments and in, 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 in different times we're acting on different levels. So, for example, the only reason that I don't go 90 miles an hour on the New Jersey Turnpike when I'm driving up to New York is because I don't want a ticket. Is it because I don't think it's – I'm a good driver. I can go 90 miles an hour, right? But ultimately, I don't want that punishment. I don't want – I don't want – to get a ticket. I, I, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have to go to traffic court in some town in central Jersey. Like, I don't want to deal with that. Right. And so I don't speed. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the notion of KIPP dollars, and remember, you said we pay our kids. We're not paying them, like, cash, no, right? Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so uh, the notion that we have set up something for 10-year-olds to understand the concreteness of that, we think actually it is a way to then have the conversation around, so, you know, when you repeatedly speak out and, and yell out the answer in math class, the result of that is that the other kids who were trying to solve that problem in their head, now they just stop trying, and so they learn less. And so while I'm proud of you that you knew the answer to 4 times 3 was 12, you need to raise your hand like everybody else so that other kids have the time to think. Mm-hmm. I would love it if our teachers in the moment, you know, could have that conversation like right then and there in that moment. Uh, The reality is uh, that the way public schools are funded in this country, I've got to have between 25 and 30 students in all of our classrooms. um, And even the very best teachers aren't going to live in a world where they can have that conversation in the moment. 
we want them to have that conversation, though. And so, in essence, when they when that child lost two dollars for calling out in class, then that's the opportunity to circle back. And when the system's working right, then you have the conversation about when you blurt out the answer to the math question in class. The result of that, or the the the, the impact of that, is that the other kids aren't learning as much because they're stopping to trying to solve that problem in their head. They stop thinking. Um, and so we have to change that behavior. So there's, a, there's sort of a pragmatism to it. The, right. It's, I think it's highly pragmatic. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, it seems to me that what you're valuing in that is the efficiency of the process over taking the time to help them see in an organic way how their actions actually affect others through actually experiencing dialogue with others. So if you, t- to me, the, the notion that you can take away a KIPP dollar and then tell me that the reason is, is that I was um, sort of um, being an obstacle towards learning for the other students by blurting out the answer. Um, I'm thinking less about your reasoning and more about the, the transaction. If I was in a situation where I could hear from my peers about how my blurting out might impact them, I think a 10-year-old has the capacity to just understand that without um, the need to have the transactional sort of system. And what I'm saying is that I, I think – I mean I, I do think that it's a, it's a really deep philosophical difference that you're describing between your approach and the one best exemplified or described by Alfie Cohn that the system itself that's in place – is is one that is geared towards helping people see that they need to make sure that they understand their place in the system and that they shouldn't um, go outside the lines of their place in the system. If they do the things they're supposed to do, they'll get stuff. And if they don't do the stuff, the things they're supposed to do, they'll get stuff taken away, but there's also a sort of public image issue there that you're the kid with less points than everyone else. Um, and so I'm, what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is like, it feels like that kind of token reward system, token economy system is there primarily to keep control and then, then justified by things like Kohlberg stages of moral development, that the, 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 the explanation for it, the foundational philosophy for it is backed into as a way to sort of wrap something around it that makes it valid. Uh, interesting. Um, so I would say, first of all, I think it's a bit of a false choice. Um, I think that this is about and, not or, to once again rip something off from Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that um, what you're talking about is the system when it's broken. Mm-hmm. So if it's not being implemented correctly, if it's being implemented incorrectly – um, then it is about sort of power dynamics. I'm the teacher. How dare you? Um, and it's about control. Whereas we could also talk about the other piece of, uh, of it, which if also is the only way that you're going to implement uh, uh, sort of any sort of character development. And if it is done incorrectly, um, doesn't work either, mm-hmm. right? So like what I, what I would what I would challenge what I would challenge sort of listeners to think about is this notion of um, any system implemented incorrectly with 
I think, now back to this notion of values, with sort of the wrong ends in mind. Mm -hmm. If your end is to teach obedience, if your end is to assert the power of a teacher, right? Um, then yes, that's a, that is an, a, that is an abuse of that system. That is when that that is the failure of that system. Um, on the other side of it, you know, through having thoughtful conversations and making sure that children understand the impact and the and the consequences of their actions, um, without some sort of structure to it, if that isn't going correctly, then I think you have the opportunity. And sadly, what it can slip into is how many traditional. Uh, school classrooms look in in America's inner cities, which is disorganized, not a, an environment conducive to learning, because there is no system. Because there, the, maybe the conversations are happening one eighth of the amount of time that they need to, because there's so many misbehaviors now at this point that the teacher couldn't possibly have them all and possibly try and drive any kind of results and mm -hmm. drive any kind of learning. So I think that when the when what we're doing is working the way it's supposed to. It doesn't lead to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting because, in my mind, it's about it's not just about the how the classroom is flowing, but it's the the, the creating a culture conducive to learning is also about um, each individual's attitudes towards the teacher, towards each other, and towards the material, right? And so, the level of engagement that each young person has might not be evident by looking at a classroom and seeing you mentioned earlier before we got started recording, it's very quiet today because there, because there's a class trip, a field trip today. Um, mm -hmm. um, and usually it may be much more rambunctious because I think you said learning isn't always silent, right? Oh yeah. Right. Um, so, but just by looking at a classroom, you can see a very orderly system or you can walk into a classroom and see kids working in groups. You don't necessarily know how conducive to learning the, the situation is until you have a chance to really find out what's in kids' heads. Yes. Right? So part of my uh, um, reluctance to accept the sort of token economy system as a means of – as the centerpiece of a, um, as a, of a culture, of a centerpiece, of, of one cornerstone, I really should say to be fair, of a culture, is that I was the kid who when you tried to pay me to do something, I immediately hated it. You know, so it's like, um, you know, oh, you're going to give me a gold star? I mean, from pretty early on, it was like, I always felt like, are you kidding me? Like, I, you think I'm going to do all this work for a gold star? And, you know, surely if someone had said, well, how about $10? Then that would have changed my mentality. But probably only until $10 became more normal. Mm -hmm. And then I, you know, you, I'm going to do all this for $10, mm -hmm. you know? And I do think that that's all just scale. You know what? How what the what the prize is is all just scale and can have diminishing returns over time. But do, do you see that? Are there is there at least like a, a subset of kids who seem to um, sort of disengage with the whole thing because they feel like they're being condescended to? We don't. I, I don't think we see that terribly often. Mm -hmm. um, I can't. I can't say that of the one thousand children that we serve, that at some point someone's not thinking that. Yeah. Um, I think that. The uh, you alluded to it a little bit, but um, I think that the thing that we can't make sure uh, that we that we must make sure that we talk about is is the relationship between a teacher and a student, mm -hmm. um, because ultimately this any of this only works if you have that strong relationship. Um, the 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 so first of all, if a teacher knows that Eric in the back of my class is like not into gold stars, then it would be our expectation that that teacher doesn't give Eric gold stars. And not that that means that he's got to get 10 bucks, um, but that it means that there is clearly something else 
that motivates Eric, and whether it is um, you know seeing his name on a list of kids who got a 100 on the test, or whether it is um, a positive phone call home to mom, or whether it is frankly remaining a little bit on the uh, in in the back and 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 not having that spotlight, whatever it is, like our teachers have to know that. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the art and the science of teaching, there's an art and a science to any kind of school-wide discipline system as well. Um, and so, yes, chewing gum, we want that to be minus five in every single classroom because we want students to not pit teachers against each other. How come in Mr. Gurna's classroom that was only minus two? You're unfair. You don't like me. Mm-hmm. Like, so we, we try and have those consistent rules so as not to, to blow the, the mind of an 11-year-old um, and to make it very predictable. Um, but at the same time, um, y- you have to know as the teacher sort of what the vibe is of your room each individual student as a person, as a child, as uh, somebody who is putting an unbelievable amount of trust in your hands that you're going to keep them safe and you're going to make the learning environment safe, a safe one to take risks. Um, and at the end of the day, those relationships are the, the biggest reason why our schools are experiencing the success that they are. Um, more so than a token economy system, more so than the fact that we wean them off it, more so the f- than sort of the way it's rooted in Maslow. Mm-hmm. In in Maslow? Sorry, not Maslow, uh, Kohlberg. I forget oh. my psychologist. No, I would love to hear about how it's rooted in Maslow. <laughs> well, I can tell you, right? I was, a, I was a psych major once upon a time. I mean, the bottom line is safety is at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, and to your point about what's conducive for a learning environment, um, if a child doesn't feel like it's safe to take risks, can I, I need to know that every single one of my kids is willing to raise their hand if they think they know the right answer, not when they know they have the right answer, because that's when those learning moments happen. If I say four times three is seven, then my teacher needs to be able to help me understand what I just screwed up. Mm-hmm. Um, and, needs to, and that needs to happen in a room where other kids aren't laughing, because if other kids are laughing... Next time, I'm just not raising my friggin' hand, and mm-hmm. I do not learn as much. So I don't want to be unfair by jumping on that example, but mm-hmm. what the the reaction that I have in my mind is, but wouldn't it the the level of risk for you know the kind of situation we want to create for where kids can actually take a risk? To me, is more about when there's conversations when there is no right answer, and they feel that they're free to raise their hand and create an idea or add to an existing idea. And it it's it doesn't seem to me like those are the examples that are at the at your fingertips because it seems to me like the 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 right answer, wrong answer, do I get a point, do I not get a point, do I get a kip buck, do I not get a kip buck? It, it is is much more prevalent. Am, am I wrong? Is that unfair? Uh, I think it's a little unfair. I think I'm just trying to use the most concrete examples that I yeah. can. Um, I think that uh, it is it is going to be really hard for me to say something uh, right now, sitting in my office, yeah. um, that can convince you or anybody else that we are working really hard to make sure that we're we have the high order thinking in our classrooms to yeah. make sure that um, this isn't about you know the old criticisms of Kip about drill and kill and the only thing we care about is computation and math and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, although I totally see how the example that I picked would potentially reinforce that sort of bias. Um, I would invite you or anybody else listening to come and see a Kip, even if a uh, Kip fifth grade math class, a Kip tenth grade biology class, a Kip second grade classroom, um, and and sort of make that decision for yourself mm-hmm. about the way that we're approaching that. 
Yeah, and that's why I ask it like, is this unfair? Because no, I'm I'm glad I, you called it out because I didn't even realize. But I was trying to make simply a, a more concrete example. That's all. Yeah, no, and it's not just that that one example. It obviously ties into everything else that that we're talking about. Um, as we get towards wrapping up, there's there's one you know I, I mentioned to you you know the rap on Kip is this or the rap on Kip is that, mm-hmm. and and a big part of my wanting to talk to you is you know I'm I was starting to feel as I refer to the Kip model in a rather cavalier way. I, that I'm being unfair, that I need to learn more um, and not just read the criticism, but go and talk to Kip and learn more about it, understand more about it. And certainly when you sit across the table from someone and talk to someone who clearly – like yourself, who clearly has you know the passion and dedication for helping young people succeed, it helps to like sort of make the whole thing more human. Um, but – I, so I, w- I want to ask you about some of the uh, – one or two more of these things that are sort of in my mind, like, <laughs> okay. oh, Kip does that. Okay. Um, silent lunches. Uh-huh. That's, I keep hearing that over and over again. When kids don't behave, they're not allowed to talk at lunch. Is this a thing or is this a myth? Is, is it a thing? So we don't have silent lunches, but we do have – there are consequences when kids screw up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the thing about a consequence, as you, you pointed out with a reward – if it if it's not something that kids care about, then it's not a consequence. And so, have I told a, a, a lunchroom that they're going to be silent for the next five minutes? For heck yeah, I have because that felt like the appropriate consequence based on whatever the heck I saw in that moment. Um, are Kip kids allowed to talk in lunch? Ninety nine percent of the time, at least Kip Philadelphia students mm-hmm. are. Uh, the the cafeteria looks like any orderly, like respectful but certainly loud middle school, high school, elementary school cafeterias, anyone else. Um, The other one was, and I'm not going to remember this exactly right, something about when kids misbehave, they have to walk around with their shirt untucked so that everyone knows it or some signifier like that. Am I... um, So every school is going to have a different discipline system and Uh and that may be... I haven't heard of the shirt untucked one before. I have heard about the shirt inside out before. Okay. Um, and at various it stages, yeah, at various stages of our evolution, we've done that and not done that at different points in times. Um, the 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 bottom line is um, that we are we're very focused on on a, a pragmatic approach, um, and this is something that we had found to be effective in certain situations. Um, the 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 notion that for us it was always that um, everything at Kip is earned. Um, including the right to wear a shirt that says Kip on it. Um, and so in, in if, if a student does something that is such an egregious um, violation of what it is that we believe and what it is that we stand for. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a type of consequence that would happen in a more sort of uh, – a more serious situation. Um, sadly, it's, it's still middle school. Um, and 11- and 12-year-olds sometimes make really bad choices. And so a student who makes, like, a devastatingly bad choice, we might say to them, you know, you're not going to wear the Kip name on your chest anymore until you've earned that back. Um, and, in that, and, and so in that moment, um, we, were, we would tell them to, to go to the bathroom and turn their shirt inside out so the, the, the Kip on their, on their chest or on their back wasn't visible anymore. And but there's a uniform policy, so yes. everyone's wearing a Kip shirt. Yes, that's right. So everyone's wearing. It's mandatory that kids wear a shirt with Kip on it. Uh, yep, we have a uniform policy. Right, but it's but they have to earn their right to wear the shirt. With that's Kip right. On it. When a new student starts with us, they wear a blank shirt 
Um, like we, we tell their parents and, and we start our relationship with every family with a home visit um, where after they're selected through our lottery, um, then we go and we explain the expectations of the school to the child and the mom. We let them ask any questions they have about their new school. Um, and one of the things we tell them is that for the first few weeks in, in, in summer, um, mm-hmm. excuse me, they have to wear a blank T-shirt. Um, it should be a blank white T-shirt um, until they earn their very first Kip shirt. And we have a big ceremony for when they've earned the right to be to be is uh, it at a, the, the same time every time or is it like is so it there actually is each the, kid like you have to decide <laughs> that have you earned it yet there is a t-shirt ceremony where we where about 90 to 95 percent of the kids have earned it but then okay. there's going to be a, a couple of kids who've made bad choices early on in the school year who then uh-huh. have to earn that anew and um do you feel that that creates a, a pressure on that they create a pressure for themselves to um adhere to the behavior policies because they don't have the I haven't earned the right to this. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think it does. I think that ultimately um, one of the things that we're trying to establish is we're a team and a family and that there is a, a way that we are going to act. There's a way that we're going to carry ourselves both academically um, as well as in terms of the, the, the choices that we make in the cafeteria, in the hallways, at the bus stop, et cetera. Um, and so, yeah, part of this is like a positive peer pressure um, where, look, that's not what we do here. Uh-huh. Like, why are you being mean? Like, that, we don't do that here. And we're trying to establish that sort of positive peer pressure in that way. But isn't, it, isn't the tactic to get there public humiliation? I would not call it public humiliation. I mean, it, it is not the type of thing where um, we're, we're, like, putting on blast and just, you know, you stand up. Everybody else, you know, let's throw rotten vegetables at this kid. Um, that's not at all what's happening. There is a positive peer pressure that, that comes from wanting to be sort of on the team. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's ultimately what the, what the, what we're trying to tap into there. So, I mean, I know you're not throwing rotten vegetables at the kid, but I mean, it's, it's a, or verbal rotten vegetables, but rotten, the, the point verbal. of it, the point of the, the shirt thing, it's not like you really think that the shirt matters that much. The shirt itself, what matters is that everyone sees that they have they don't they don't have kip on their shirt that their shirt's inside out or they're wearing a white t-shirt after everyone else got their t-shirt the point is that they're they stand out from everyone else as being sort of like they have a an x on them or whatever you want to call it right um i mean for I mean, that's for, the tactic there are one of the schools that one of our schools has a shirt as a um like a, a sticker like a name sticker my name is or whatever and it yeah. says i'm turning it around um uh, at our elementary school it, it is just like probably you know I can't say the percentage, but like at, at hundreds and thousands of elementary schools across the country, there's the clothespin system where your clothespin is either here or it's there or it's there and it's on green, yellow, red or whatever On a board or something, yeah, not yeah, on yeah. you. Uh, but I could argue that if it's on the board and I'm, a, I'm in that classroom, I can see who's green, yellow, red. Right, sure, sure. I mean, it's the same, 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 it's the same idea. idea. Right. It is trying to teach a kid uh, that there is a, a way that Kipsers act. Um, there is a, a curiosity that they bring to the classroom. There is a respect that they bring to their interactions with their peers and with right. their teachers. Um, and we're going to be pragmatic about that approach, and we're going to do what we think works. Right. No, I, I get that. But what, if you wouldn't call it public humiliation, what's the tactic? Like, it, I get what the point of it right. is and why, why you're doing it. But It's positive peer pressure is the answer. It's positive peer pressure. That's right. I want, okay. to, I want that privilege. 
I want to be able to talk in the cafeteria to, for that. So I'm going to, you know, the next time that the teachers say you guys are getting too loud or the next time somebody decides to whip a green bean across the room or whatever the heck it was that prompted this, um, I'm going to choose not to do that or I'm going to help sort of maintain this culture that we have, this strong culture on a peer level, student to student. But it's the reason I'm going to choose that is because I feel humiliated for not being able to have my shirt on right side out. I don't think we're going to agree on that at all. Okay. Like, I, I don't oh, think so this is So what's your about, reason? What, as a, as want, a kid, why do I want to um, earn my shirt back? What, what's, what's my um, motivation for how do I feel? Let me, let me ask it like that. As a kid, how do I feel when I'm not allowed to wear the Kip shirt? Uh, hard to speculate. I don't know. Um, but what I do know is what I want them to feel, which is pride of belonging on the team. I want them to feel pride that they're a Kipster. They're right. taking control of their own future. They're going to and through college. They're going to have a happy, independent life. That's what I want them to feel. In the absence isn't it of that, what there's they going actually to be, feel. There's, well, in the absence of that, there's going to be all the the, the sort of the, the counterpoints. Um, at the end of the day, though, I just don't think this is about. It's not about public shaming, and and I think that um, we're we're locked into a dichotomous debate when it doesn't need to be mm-hmm. like at the at the end of the day what we're looking for is we're looking for students to understand that there's a set of choices there's going to be many forks in the road and that we're we we believe in you and you're going to make it to have this happy independent life and we're going to teach you but when i ask how does that kid feel and you say i can't speculate on that i i just know how i want them to feel isn't that at the crux of a lot of this, like, it, doesn't it actually matter what that kid actually is feeling? And isn't it our job as educators to, like, to try as hard as we can to learn what's going on inside of them? Don't I want a child to feel a negative emotion after they just chucked green beans across the cafeteria? I don't know. Do people do better when they feel worse? I think that you remember the choice that you made that made you feel that way, and then you choose a different path next time. I think that's learning. Okay. And so whether it's a red X next to number three on the, the higher order thinking question on their math test, um, or whether it is a consequence that is delivered in the form of a negative uh, on, a, on a, a paycheck, or, or it is in the form of being told that you're not on the team anymore and you're going to have to turn your shirt inside out or you're going to get your clothes pin moved to yellow. Um, I, I'm, I'm learning now. Mm-hmm. This is learning. Okay. Um, I've, I've thrown a lot of things at you to respond to. I'm wondering... Um, is there anything else that you feel like is, uh, you know, a criticism that's out there or just sort of how Kip's referred to or anything that you, you'd want to clear up? Or is there just anything else that you'd want people to know about your work? Well, I think that what, we, um, what we've spent a lot of time thinking about and working on, um, and this is an incredible point of pride for, for me and for us, is this, this notion of college completion for our kids. Um, we are a lottery system um, in terms of how children come to KIPP. And so yeah. that means that we are, you know, we're actually in our open room period right now. Um, and so you are, uh, as a parent, you have the choice of entering our lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and we work really hard to make sure that every single parent in our neighborhoods that we serve know about our lottery. Um, we walk around with clipboards signing people up um, on the weekends, in the evenings. We go to parks. We go to churches. We go to community centers. We go to supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Just making sure that everybody has the opportunity to sign up. Um, and after that lottery happens – um, with the students who come in, there's an incredibly wide range of ability. There's an incredibly wide range of, of previous knowledge and educational attainment that, that our children come to us with. Um, 
you know, uh, of, of our uh, Kip Philadelphia, um, as when you put all three of our schools together, 17 um, point eight or something percent of them have uh, a special education need of some kind, have an IEP. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that one criticism out there that we don't serve special ed kids. It's just patently false here in Philly. Um, and then you look at um, at the for the students who are with us at the end of eighth grade, how many of them are graduating with a two or four year degree from college? The notion that thirty eight percent is first of all more than four times the average for kids who grow up in poverty in this country. That number is eight percent. Um, so 38% is almost five times that number. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet we're still not satisfied because for the top quartile by income in this country, uh, that number is between 75 and 80%. Mm-hmm. We see that as the real achievement gap in this country. That is the thing that has caused the institutionalized poverty. That is the thing that is holding our country back from realizing what it could become. The fact that there are, are 8% of children who are going to have that opportunity to have that that happy independent life because they've got that college degree compared to 75 to 80% for the top quartile. Kip and others like us are trying to totally reverse that. Um, and we're not going to be satisfied until we have closed that gap, um, not the seventh grade reading gap um, you know, as measured on some state tests, not even the ACT or the SAT. What we're trying to do is we're trying to close that gap in terms of college completion. Um, and, you know, we have come an incredibly long way and we have an incredibly long way to go. It's going to be incredibly hard um, for us uh, and, and those who are working alongside us um, to close that gap. But we are not going to stop um, until we're there. I mean, um, there is nothing that we see as more important than that. Um, and so we're going after it. Well, thanks. And Mark, I want, really want to thank you for um, being on Please Speak Freely and for having this conversation with me. I, I know that there was a lot of things that I was raising that um, were, you know, trying to sort of, I certainly wasn't trying to poke holes in your argument, but really trying to have an authentic conversation about different viewpoints. Um, and I really appreciate you engaging in it with me. And, um, you know, I, I, I learned a lot and I hope to learn more. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope you get a chance to come back and see the classes in session. We can see some good higher order thinking and we can see uh, what that paycheck system looks like in practice when it's done yeah. correctly. I'd love to. Great. Thanks, Thanks Eric. All right.